1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. In March 1971, a Washington Post reporter named Betty Metzger received a catch of stolen FBI files that detailed the elaborate surveillance activities the Bureau was using against Vietnam War protesters and others whom J. Edgar Hoover deemed subversive. All Metzger knew about the documents was that they had been stolen by a group of anonymous individuals who called themselves the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI. In 2014, she revisited the story in her book, The Burglary, the Discovery of J. Edgar Hoover's Secret FBI. In it, she tells the story of an unlikely group of academics and ordinary citizens who broke into a suburban FBI office and shed light on the way the intelligence community was spying on its own citizens.
0: Now it's my pleasure to welcome Betty Metzger. I don't know how familiar you are with her recent book, titled The, Tell the Burglary, Discovery of J. Edgar Hoover's Secret FBI. It's a fascinating story. When I first read about what she had done in the Times the end of January, I wanted to reach out to her. And then as it happened, we had a connection through Honor Moore, and we were able to invite her to come talk to us today. When Betty Mesker was a reporter at the Washington Post in the early 1970s, she began receiving files that had been stolen from a Philadelphia office of the FBI. They documented domestic spying on radical groups and the Dirty Tricks campaign under J. Edgar Hoover, whose power, you might recall, uh, frightened even sitting president's. This marked the first time that a a journalist had received uh, secret files from a source that had been stolen anywhere near this explosive uh, nature. And it was the first time the Washington Post defied a presidential request that a story not run and uh, decided to put it on the front page. 47 years later, she's just published the definitive account of the burglary. It's incredible what it revealed and how gutsy they were to, to undertake this burglary. And I'm happy to now welcome Eddie Metzger to come and talk to us about her book and her work.
2: As you can tell, I'm a very slow writer. <laughs> started on this story in 1971 and just finished it two months ago. But that wasn't my intention. Back in 1971, after receiving these documents anonymously, I thought I was done with this story. Then, many years later, quite unexpectedly, found two of the burglars. And that began the next stage of writing about this story. I'm usually talking to people who have either no memory of it because they have forgotten about it or because they're too young to know anything about it. And the history books don't tell people much about what happened, how we came to know what the FBI was really like under J. Edgar Hoover. But I have a feeling by combination of your knowledge and age that you probably are familiar with the background of what J. Edgar Hoover was like and why it was so important that somebody broke the news. I think even for those of us who remember that era, it may be a little difficult to remember what was going on that we came to know as more than suspicion. I find that many people will say, well, we all knew that. We all knew what was going on. I encountered that last night with someone. Well, that was actually one of the reasons for the the burglary that whole lot of people did have suspicions and lives were being damaged by informers actions but we didn't actually know and certainly the american public didn't know it's also hard for most people to remember how idolized hoover was all of those years 47 years as of the time of the burglary he was appointed fbi director when he was 29 years old (laughs) by Harlan Fisk Stone, who I don't think I'll ever forgive for the way in which he did it. <laughs> he knew what Hoover had done when he w- was working for the Attorney General. He knew that Hoover had started mass collection of f- files on people because of their political views and had even spoken out against it, Harlan Fisk Stone had, in, in testimony before Congress. But he was, as Attorney General, rather brief turn as Attorney General before he became a member of the Supreme Court, he was so impressed by Young Hoover's efficiency. And that convinced him that this was the person to clean up what was then considered a very corrupt Bureau of Investigation. But it was a different kind of corruption. And efficiency did take care of the bribery and the deals that were being made. And he told him that he thought that this collecting of files that he had brought over from the Justice Department to the FBI, he told him it was unconstitutional and assumed that that was the end of it. And you know, Hoover did not end it, and that was the beginning of what he continued to do the rest of his life, and but in far worse ways in later years. The historian Richard Gidd Powers, I think, described the situation as of 1971 fairly well. He said, Hoover's power to conduct secret operations depended on the absolute freedom that he had from any inquiry into the internal operations of the Bureau. And that, on the night of March 8, 1971, that changed forever. A group calling itself the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI broke into the FBI resident agency in Media, Pennsylvania, and the burglars were never caught. And that's true. They were never caught. And after five years, the statute of limitations had expired, but they weren't paying attention to that. And it really didn't matter to them. They continued to keep the secret because two weeks after the burglary, when they saw each other for the last time, they made two promises. One, that they wouldn't associate with each other for practical reasons that they were afraid that association of one with the other could lead to multiple arrests. But they also made a vow that they would take this secret to their graves. It still strikes me, despite all the years that I've been working with them, that eight people could have kept a secret like this as long as they did, especially after they saw that what they did led to such a significant impact. There was no oversight. There were no mechanisms in Congress for oversight of the FBI. Of course, they could have been creative. And attorney generals, who were technically Hoover's boss, gave him a pass. And most attorney generals felt more like Hoover was their boss. And in fact, Nicholas Katzenbach was driven out of being attorney general by Hoover when Katzenbach told him that he had to act in a lawful way Hoover would have had none of it and made Katzenbeck's life quite miserable. So here we have a group of people who decide that they are the commission to investigate the FBI and that in the absence of oversight, that they are going to provide that oversight. That novel idea is the brainchild of one person without whom the burglary would not have happened and that is Bill Davidon. Bill Davidon, who I regret to say died in November before the book was published and the documentary that's coming out at the Tribeca Film Festival came out, but he was very much aware that everything was in place and about to come out. He had some unique capabilities and a unique personality. He was a very mild-mannered physics professor from Haverford. If you met him, you'd have no idea that he would even participate in a protest, let alone be the leader and designer of a plan to burglarize an FBI office, although he certainly participated in many, many protests. He was a Navy veteran, but he had become a pacifist after the bombing of Hiroshima and at Nagasaki. And the beginning then really focused on the anti-nuclear movement part of that coming from his deep knowledge as a physicist about the potential damage. He was very active in peace movement in Philadelphia, which was a vast combination of organizations and thousands of people, maybe larger than any place in the country. And he was a part of several of those groups. And by 1969, he was looking for more aggressive ways to protest, non-violently. He was very worried about the sense of futility that had developed in the peace movement, how hopeless people felt that the war had been going on and on and seemed like there was no end in sight. And as a professor, he was especially worried about the impact that this was having on some students and recent graduates and people on the fringes who were becoming violent themselves. And so he kept looking for a way to be more aggressive in practicing nonviolence. And he found hope of all places, and he always found this very amusing later on with Catholics. Dan Berrigan had inspired him, and then after Dan Berrigan, the next tier, the next part of the Catholic movement, raided draft boards. And Bill became part of that very reluctantly, but he found in that. The aggressive nonviolence that he was looking for. And there were about 500 people who participated in those raids up and down the East Coast, not getting much attention, raiding draft boards that disproportionately served the poor. And he found that rather repugnant, but he also thought that it served a very good purpose. And it came to mean something very significant soon after that. In 1970, Throughout that year, which was a pretty terrible year, a series of awful events happened then, probably many of you will remember them, Kent State, Jackson State. On the week after Kent State, the beating of students here by the construction workers from the Twin Towers, and then Nixon honoring those construction workers at the White House a month later for beating those students. I mean, it was a time of very extreme things. And during that year, Bill kept hearing people in the peace movement in Philadelphia saying that they thought that there were spies in their midst. And by scientific training and personality, he dismissed it, he didn't believe it. He thought that people were in such a state of hopelessness about the war that they sort of lost their focus and they were imagining these things. But he kept hearing it, and he kept hearing it from very responsible people, people he really respected. And gradually, by that fall, He believed that it was true, and he could see the poisonous atmosphere that was developing in the peace movement, the trust shredding and people dropping out because of fear of informers. By that time, he had decided that this was a huge problem that needed to be solved. And whereas most people might consider a problem like that, that dissent was being officially suppressed by the FBI and say, what could possibly be done, he thought that it was a problem too big not to be solved and started focusing on what you would do about it. And pretty soon he found himself probably by November thinking that there really were two wars going on at that time. There was the war in Vietnam and there was the war against dissent at home. He had gone to Vietnam in 1966 and while he was there, it occurred to him that there was one issue on which the heads of government in the United States in North Vietnam and South Vietnam were united. And that was that each of them thought that their own people should shut up about this war. And he thought that there was a very cruel irony in the fact that we were fighting for people to have cherished freedoms in another country while suppressing people's rights to dissent here. So he got the idea, and then a couple very strong beliefs motivated him. First of all, that a citizen is responsible for their government, and it's up to them to do everything they can to get their government on a better course when they see a serious problem. And another one that seems almost hard to imagine that somebody would believe this, given the adoration that the public felt for Hoover, He thought that if the public was presented with evidence that suppression of dissent was taking place, that Americans would demand that official suppression of dissent be stopped. And in fact, that did happen. But he thought the key to this was evidence, that people would not be convinced that this was going on, let alone want to take action, unless they were given documentary evidence. He also was upset by the idea of the rhetoric about sure there are spies in our midst because one thing he thought that if that continued, it would just lead to a deeper and deeper cynicism. Finally, he concluded that evidence could be found only by breaking in, that there was no chance that Congress would investigate the FBI and certainly the Nixon administration would not investigate the FBI. Burglary was repugnant to him, but again, he could see no other way. So in late December, he met separately with nine people, and he asked each of them the question, what do you think of burglarizing an FBI office? And needless to say, even in that intense time of rather unusual forms of protest, that question struck even these nine people who knew him fairly well as a pretty shocking thing. Of the nine people he asked, one, a philosophy professor, said no, and all the rest said yes, after thinking about it very carefully. A ninth person in the group worked with them the entire time and then dropped out of the group just days before the burglary and then came back to two people in the group a few weeks later and said, I'm thinking of turning you in. Now, the eight who planned and carried out the burglary in addition to Bill Davidon, there were two people, Keith Forsyth and Bob Williamson. They were about 20 at the time, and they were people who had dropped out of college in order to spend almost full time working against the war. That's a thought that is so hard for people today to grasp that people would do that kind of thing. Keith had come from a small town in Ohio, dropped out of the College of Worcester, and was working part-time as a cab driver. And Bob Williamson was from a small town in central New Jersey, and in high school, just two years earlier, had won the statewide speech contest in the American Legion for a speech that he gave against people who were burning their draft cards. These people had gone through some evolutions. And then there are two people whom I don't name because they have chosen to tell their stories, but not to be identified. One I call Ron Durst. And Ron was in his mid-twenties at that time, and his parents were Holocaust survivors. And as he grew up, he heard many, many stories around the dinner table about the relatives that he never met because they did not survive the Holocaust. And the idea of never again struck was deep in his soul. And when he became an anti-war activist, he applied it to what the United States was doing. He applied it to Cambodia and he applied it to Vietnam. And he also became involved in this same part of the peace movement. Susan Smith was another college professor and she had like uh, some of the other older members of the group, including Davidon, had gone south each summer during the Civil Rights Movement. And that was sort of the roots of her motivation, the commitment that she had made then. She had a terrible experience right after the burglary. She was one of the four people who went into the FBI office that night, each of them with two large suitcases and in the dark stuffed the files into the suitcases. About 24 hours after the burglary, she had this terrible feeling that she had removed her glove while she was inside the office. And she made herself try to trace every movement. Had she taken her glove off? What had she touched? And by the time she would go through all of that, she would convince herself, no, I did not take my glove off, but she would have this brief relief and then I'm not sure. And this went on at night where she would try to go to sleep. This went on for a couple of years. It was a fairly brutal experience. And the two other people are John and Bonnie Rains. They were a married couple at the time with three children under the age of eight. And they had a philosophy that was somewhat unusual, again, even for that time. They had made a decision that they hoped that if they were ever presented with an opportunity in a hard time to do something that might have an impact in a struggle for justice, that they would have the courage to agree that they would both participate. And they thought that because parents usually felt their obligations as parents was such that they shouldn't participate in acts of resistance, that at any given time, there was a fairly significant part of the population that wasn't making itself available to participate in such things. And they decided that was a cop-out they would try to avoid. So when Bill Davidon asked them if they would participate, they gave it a lot of thought and finally decided that they would. All of these people, of course, were fully aware that they faced the possibility of many years in prison if they were arrested for this raid. The Reigns thought about it a great deal, and in fact, they had made arrangements before the burglary for his brother and his wife to raise their children if they were arrested and went to prison. Group came together and starting that January, they did a lot of casing. They also chose a very special night for the burglary. The anniversary is tomorrow night, by the way, March 8th. That is also the anniversary of the Muhammad Ali Joe Frazier first world championship (laughs) boxing match, which took place at Madison Square Garden and is still regarded as the fight of the century and for some the sporting event of the century. It was an amazing event tickets sold out within hours and it was ali's return to the ring after being out of the ring for six years for his conviction for refusing to serve in vietnam so this amazing pattern of ali seen by the anti-war activist as their hero joe frazier had gone to the white house to meet with nixon to get help to get ali qualified but and accepted by the boxing commission And they end up providing sound cover for the burglary. (laughs) So that was their intent when they got together to think about a night. They needed to choose it right away, and they weren't exactly boxing fans, but they ended up being big fans of this boxing match. And it did, in fact, provide sound cover. The FBI office turned out to be on the second floor of a small apartment building. So on the two floors above the FBI were all these residences where people could maybe hear the sounds of a burglary taking place down below. I should also note that the burglary almost didn't take place. Keith Forsyth, this part-time cab driver, took a correspondence course in locksmithing during the months before the burglary and taught himself how to pick locks, was very careful not to go purchase any tools because then there would be a receipt, and somebody might remember that this skinny kid had come in and bought these lock picking tools. So he went and looked at the lock on the office and figured out what kind of lock it was. It was a fairly common lock. And then went to the appropriate place and bought the materials needed and made his own lock picking tools. And he practiced as, as the rest of them would return from casing and go to the Raines's attic and strategize about what they had learned that night during casing and what they needed to do next and so forth. He would be standing at a door that he had put up, (laughs) practicing his locks picking, with the idea to get it to be as fast as possible. So he thought he could do it in 30 seconds. But when he arrived alone to break in that night, there were two locks on the door, not one. And he was absolutely certain that there had been only one. And so was Bonnie Rains, who had done inside casing for an hour, interviewing an FBI agent two weeks before the burglary. So he decided at that point, after working very hard, but facing the fact that the second lock, the new lock, was much more complicated. And he was unable to deal with it. He went back to the motel where the rest of the burglars were waiting and said, I don't think we can do this. And then a very important session took place with the calm, Bill Davadon going through what they knew, what they didn't know. And despite all of the things that they couldn't change that still seemed very dangerous, they all decided to move ahead despite that. So after the burglary, they drive to a small farmhouse about 30 miles from Philadelphia. And that's where they spent 10 days sorting the files, making decisions about sending them out How did he get into the second lock? Yeah. Didn't. There was a second external door, and it had only one lock, and it was a very basic lock. So he was able to pick that. But the problem with that door and why he hadn't used that in the first place was that Bonnie Rains had found out when she cased the inside of the office that behind that door was a very tall very full metal cabinet she said don't use that door the concern was that pushing it would topple that very heavy cabinet but that's what he had to do (laughs) and it worked 10 days after the burglary they mailed the first set of files those files were the first documentary evidence that the public ever had of what I call J. Edgar Hoover's secret FBI, which at that time, in most parts of the country and certainly throughout the the Northeast and the Upper Midwest and the West Coast, was occupying more than half of the FBI's time. The first file after the cover letter from the Citizens Commission on on what I received was a file that, and maybe some of you are aware of this because the language was so striking, a file that said that FBI agents should behave in such a way that they will, quote, enhance the paranoia and make people feel that there is, quote, an FBI agent behind every mailbox. And that really struck people, as you can imagine, and that document became emblematic of the burglary. All you had to say was paranoia, mailbox, and people would recall that. The first set of files also described in detail specific operations at campuses in the Philadelphia area where informers were working, and they included the switchboard operators on campuses, switchboard operators listening to professors' conversations, mail carriers who were opening mail and reporting the contents to the FBI, and mid-level college administrators who were also working as informers for the FBI. Some other f- facts about the campuses, every black student on the Swarthmore campus was being watched and had a file at the FBI. And in fact, there was a program there that was just coming into full force, and it actually was existed around the country, where black students on campuses were supposed to all come under surveillance. In the files that I received over that two-month period, looking back on it, I think the ones that strike me most, and probably got less attention at the time, were the ones that described the surveillance of African-American people. It involved individuals, it involved organizations, but it also was as far as you could do blanket surveillance in a pre-high-tech world. The blanket surveillance was amazing, and it was taking place all over the country. Every FBI agent was required to have at least one informer that reported to them regularly on the activities of black people. We're not talking about violence. We're just talking about black people's activities in general, whatever you can pick up. In Washington DC, throughout the 60s and the early 70s, the requirement was that every FBI agent was supposed to have at least six informers reporting to them on a constant basis on the activities of black people. And in the files as they pertain to Philadelphia, it was also described where the surveillance should take place. And it was like looking at a guide to where any person would go in an average day in their life. The corner store, their churches, their classrooms for high school and college students, libraries, bars, restaurants, and also the specific types of people who would likely be good as informers. And there was a difference in the files between how white people became a target and how black people became a target. For white people to become a target of Hoover's FBI, you at least had to have expressed some kind of subversive idea or associated with a subversive person. Now, be sure his idea of subversive was as wide as you can imagine, and that much of it didn't have anything to do with anything that you would regard as subversive. It might have just been writing a letter to your local newspaper expressing mild opposition to the Vietnam War. But at least that qualification, bad as it was, was there for white people. And that was not true for black people. Black people, by virtue of being black, were dangerous, as far as Hoover was concerned. Now, one other thing that the media paper revealed was the security index. The public was not aware of the security index. It had gone through a number of names. And this was the list of, of, at that time, 26,000 people that the FBI had created that would be detained without habeas corpus in the case of a national emergency and without attorney generals knowing about it. Now the worst was yet to come by the time that all of the files had been received and written about. One of them provided a big clue to something that that we soon learned about. And it was a mere routing slip that had, in big letters across the top, COINTELPRO. And you probably have heard of COINTELPRO. I hope it's the most vicious and that there aren't others that we don't yet know about, as it was pretty terrible. And we came to know about it because Carl Stern, Carl Stern was an NBC reporter, and more than a year after the burglary, Carl happened to see that routing slip that some of us had received back then. And he saw it on a desk in the House Judiciary Committee. And he looked at it and he thought the term was strange. It was completely unknown. But he also thought that the instructions at the bottom were strange. The routing slip was attached to an article from Barron's on what college presidents should do to bring protesting students and professors under control. And in handwriting at the bottom, FBI agents were instructed to unmail this with an anonymous letter to presidents that are not friendly to the FBI and give it personally to college presidents who are friendly to the FBI. And Carl thought that was a very strange practice for FBI agents to be involved in. Little did he know yet. So he applied under the Freedom of Information Act to receive the founding documents of COINTELPRO. Just what was the rationale for this? What was COINTELPRO? It took over a year. And it involved suing, and finally a judge ordering the FBI to release those founding papers. And he became the first person to succeed in getting any file from the FBI under the Freedom of Information Act. And those operations ranged, I describe it as, from crude to cruel, which really isn't quite accurate. They really ranged from cruel to murderous, because they did involve setting up Murders, and also in some cases, FBI agents just being one step back, giving the information on where somebody would be and should be killed. Probably one of the Cointelpery operations best known to people is the treatment of Martin Luther King. It went on for years, but the starkest one is the operation that was designed to try to convince Martin Luther King to commit suicide just a couple weeks before he was to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. Again, in these operations that were so extreme, black people were the major targets. And to see the scope, not only the Black Panthers, but the Southern Christian Leadership Conference were part of these operations. And the NAACP was under continuous surveillance by the FBI from 1924 forward. There was an immediate outcry when the files were first revealed. Members of Congress who had never said a critical word but only praise for J. Edgar Hoover did call for an investigation. So did um, editorial writers in most of the major newspapers in the country, and that was really unusual because most newspapers praised J. Edgar Hoover continuously. However, that was not enough for an investigation to take place, and it would take four years, but in the meantime, there was a steady release of more information. The information about what COINTELPRO was, that in Hoover's words, that it was meant to distort and neutralize individuals and groups. The pressure was building, and in 1974, there was a tipping point when Cy Hirsch, reporter then for the New York Times, wrote a story about the fact that the CIA, in violation of its charter, also had massive domestic surveillance operations in place. And less than a month later, both houses of Congress established committees to investigate the FBI. The Senate was the famous church committee. And in those public hearings, heard of many more, scandalous things that the FBI had done, but also agents testifying, high officials testifying about the fact that yes, they were lawless and they never considered whether or not they were violating law or ethics in their activities. And just one more example I want to give of the invasive nature of what was happening. It involved the FBI having a major role in education, war, and race, the major areas of American life. And just to talk about war, as far as the Vietnam War was concerned, the FBI's role started with that very important debate in August 1964 with the debate of the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which was of such crucial importance to the war all of the years that it was going on. You may recall that only two who voted against the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, Ernest Gruening of Alaska, and Wayne Morris of Oregon. They were immediately labeled as subversive, not publicly, but secretly. And the FBI managed to get the letters and telegrams people sent to those two senators saying, thank you, I support what you do. And then of course, open files on those people and followed them. I mean, that shows you how mild an action could be that would make you eligible to have a lasting FBI file. And for the people in this room, it's very relevant. Almost every writer of any note in the country had an FBI file. And for anybody doing biographies of writers, it's very common now to go to the FBI and try to get the file on the writer. Just briefly, I guess I should tell you my role at two different points. I received the files from the burglars, anonymously, two weeks after the burglary, and the cover letter told me that they had been sent to five people. And we knew by that time they'd been sent to George McGovern and Perrin Mitchell, who was a Democratic Congress member from Baltimore. And they also had been sent to two other reporters. But I didn't know that until many years later when I was reading the 34,000-page bureau investigation of the burglary. But the other four people all returned the files to the FBI immediately. One of those reporters cannot be blamed for that, and that is Jack Nelson. Jack Nelson was an investigative reporter in the Washington Bureau of the Los Angeles Times. And he was the only reporter in the country who had done investigative work that raised any critical questions about the FBI. And what happened, again, I found out years later, was that on the day that I received those files, they arrived in that bureau and somebody there intercepted them and he never knew that he had received them. Just a couple years ago, a new generation of LA Times reporters applied for Jack's FBI file and found that at that time, Hoover was engaging in a fierce campaign to get him fired from the Los Angeles Times, and obviously the person who intercepted the envelope must have been well aware of that. He was not fired and went on to continue to do great work. I should also explain that Catherine Graham did not want to publish. This was sort of understandable when nothing like this had ever happened before. It was three months before the Pentagon Papers, and she did not want to publish, and the attorney for the paper did not want to publish Two editors, Ben Bradley and Ben Bagdickian, did want to publish, thought that this was important information that the public should have. I didn't know this argument was taking place. I was just off writing my story. by 10 o'clock that night, she changed her mind and decided to publish, and the stories started being published the next day. So time passes, all these changes take place that began with what they did. And I don't think much about the burglary, except in my journalism ethics class at San Francisco State, where I was teaching. And I had a trip east between two conferences, in one in Missouri, one in Massachusetts. I gave myself the gift of a long weekend in Philadelphia, where I'd been a reporter in the late 60s. And so I called old friends and acquaintances to make appointments. And one couple said, come to dinner. And so I went to dinner at their home, and we hadn't seen each other for more than 10 years, and. We weren't close friends, but we liked each other and we had a whole lot of catching up to do. And in the course of dinner, their 14 year old daughter comes into the room, their youngest child. And the father says to her, Mary, we want you to know Betty because many years ago when your dad and mother had information about the FBI that we wanted to give to the American people, we gave it to Betty. And I was astonished, <laughs> and I couldn't wait for her to leave the room. It obviously didn't mean a thing to her. That was John and Bonnie Raines. They were people that I had known years earlier. I would have never guessed that they would have done anything like this. And so we spent many hours talking that night. I had a lot of questions, and they seemed to enjoy providing a lot of answers. And they told me that night that they had all taken this vow of secrecy. No, I think I should take a bow of silence and let you ask any questions you might have.
0: The first question. Let's put that here.
2: So when you received these files, how did, you, how did you as a reporter know that they were real? Ah, good question. The FBI was extremely helpful. First of all, as I was reading, I I wondered, I I knew I'd have to prove it, but I did start to think that they were authentic when I started seeing names of people in Philadelphia I'd been familiar with as a reporter. But as soon as I finished reading them, I went out into the newsroom and told people at the national desk what I had. And it turned out that the man who covered the Justice Department, Ken Claussen, who later went to be the Director of Communications at the Nixon White House, that he had just called from the Justice Department and ask if anybody there had received them. And so I described them to him. He went to the FBI and described them. And they said, yes, those are the files that they are stolen from the media office. And they're the ones that McGovern and, and Mitchell had returned. And that began the process then of John Mitchell spending a lot of time on the phone the rest of the day calling the two editors and Catherine Graham repeatedly saying, don't publish, but also saying that this was endangered national security and endangered lives, which you always take seriously, but we could tell from the content of the files that that definitely wasn't the case. But then I learned later when I read the investigation that he hadn't seen any of the files, nor been briefed on them at the time that he said that. Uh, aside
0: from the physics professor whose name escapes me, were these people active on the left? Were they close to SDS or progressive labor, or were they very were they, left left?
2: they were not in, in SDS. They were not in any of the traditional, what you call, main leftist organizations. They were just very active in the peace movement. But they had become involved with the Catholic left. And each one of them had. Participated in the rate of at least one draft board the previous year. They were the straightest people you can imagine.
3: First of all, I thank you for your service to the American people by working on this project. Uh, I think there's a there's an aspect of this story that makes it it's a revelation what happened when you when you published. So the notion is just that there was this rogue enterprise. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover and his, and his system, and then it gets revealed to the American people. But isn't this really, given what we've learned now from Edward Snowden, going all the way back to the Palmer raids, which uh, is where he, uh, J. Edgar Hoover cut his IT, does IT, isn't this actually business as usual in the American government, to just constantly be spying and then arresting anybody or shooting people who are, look like they're going to be causing problems? I'm, 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 this is a Well,
2: do you mean to suggest that it's hopeless? <laughs>
3: I'm not suggesting, it just, uh, like a lot of people, I touch down on this topic every yeah. now and then, and something like your book comes out, and you read about it, and, and, and you're kind of your mind is blown by how extreme it is. Just last night, I saw the opening of this play about LBJ, and a lot of this is touched on in the, in the play. And I know a lot of people in the audience just don't, they can't even believe it, that Hoover did what he did. Yeah. But it always is like, well, he's some sort of exceptional, aberration yeah. for 50 yeah. years. Yeah. But, but but now it's snowing. I mean, there hasn't been any Jay Hoover for a while, and it just feels like this is this is the way it's. There's always somebody <coughs> doing it or something like that. But I, I just want you know. Something
2: well, here. I don't have a s- certain um, way of answering that, but I have some ideas. Mm-hmm. We were so silent. We had been silent as a people. We had been silent forever about how our intelligence agencies operate. I mean, <coughs> questions had not been asked. There was no reporting on intelligence agencies prior to this time, and I don't deserve any credit for this. I mean, it's landed on my desk. It wasn't as though I went out and, ooh, I think we ought to look at this. I Every once in a while, somebody will will say something, well, this is an extraordinary thing, and, and the burglars will even say, if you hadn't done that, well, if you knew William Davidon, I like to say that if... If I had not reported it, and then those other people did not report it, that he, back in 1971, felt so urgently about this, he would have invented the internet right then and there, or done something to make this come out. But I'd just like to go back. We were totally silent, and there were no mechanisms in place. The journalism mechanism wasn't in place yet to pay attention. Not that it's always worked since then. But... The official mechanisms were not in place. And then those who could have done something and had the obligation, attorney generals and president, avoided the responsibility. davidon's expectation of the American people turned out to be right. I mean, once people knew and more and more came out, there, and the Watergate helped a lot too, because we learned so much about the manipulation of intelligence agencies during those hearings and trials, and also the Socialist Workers' Party here. Their trial had amazing revelation. People then thought, enough, we've got to do something about that. Otherwise, those congressional investigations never would have taken place. Now, you can look at the time beginning in 1980 to the present, and there are all kinds of different things that happen an up-and-down interpretation you can make of whether or not oversight was working. Reagan, in 1980, part of his campaign was to unleash the FBI. He saw the reforms having led to hemming it in. And so that was the beginning of undoing some of the reforms. So that was pretty quickly. And then it's gone back and forth. But then, after 9-11, I tend to think that The fear was so great, and Congress was willing to sacrifice so much, despite what Sensenbrenner says now about what he did then, that it's probably true that we were almost back to where we were in 1971, where we felt intelligence agencies can do whatever they want, and we don't need to ask any questions. Does that speak to you? I just,
3: you know, i just recently been studying the Palmer rays and so it, it, it doesn't seem to take a lot to get Americans frightened enough to start arresting people or investigating people for very, you know, just exercising their freedom of speech. You can exercise your freedom of speech as long as you don't <coughs> talk about anything, yeah. substance, and then you're fine.
2: This does wow. seem to be a fluid moment right now, I think, to some extent. I mean, there are people in Congress who are are trying to uh, reverse uh, some of what's been happening, and there are a lot of movements in the other direction too. But it is a time to, to speak up because a lot a lot is is, is happening. and Margaret, and
0: that's probably going to be. I'm
2: sure you thought about this. In your case it wasn't such a problem, but what do you think is because the people were anonymous and remain anonymous, but what do you think the relationship is or the responsibility involved between the reporter who
3: receives this material and the person who gives it? I'm thinking of the Snowden case, which people are
2: now receiving awards for their reporting based on his findings. Mm-hmm. But the journalistic community is not standing up. And saying you should be allowed back in the U.S. Wait, I didn't hear the last bit. Journal- the journalist community that I know, as far as I know, is not standing up and saying he is not a criminal. He
0: should
2: be allowed back in the U.S. Well, it mean, depends on what you're talking about. If you believe that he should be praised and the work that he's made available should be praised. The New York Times wrote an amazing editorial in early January in defense of Snowden and also the reporters at the major news organizations that have been working on those stories have been doing a a very good job. I think where the weakness is in the coverage is that prior to Snowden and also now, there is almost no coverage of intelligence agencies except when something extraordinary like this is almost forced on you and made available. Right now, part of that has to do with the Obama administration's aggressively going after whistleblowers, and on these kinds of things, journalists really are dependent on whistleblowers to a large extent. And they're prosecuting more whistleblowers than all previous administrations put together have. Thank you very much for your work. Um, I, I, I was thinking, as you were talking, that if Watergate hadn't happened, who knows whether there would have been any investigation at all to the intelligence agency here, you because know, Watergate was so discredited the CIA. Um, but that's not my question. My question is actually a very sort of
0: simple technical question. So your hero here, I guess all of you are heroes, but
2: the, the leader who decided to do this understood that there were informants. How did he pick these nine people? How did he know they were? Well, they had been working together. Yeah. He had been. <laughs> well, you, know, you were always taking you a chance. Sure, you're always, <laughs> you do something like this, okay. you're always taking a risk. And look at the fact that the ninth burglar left mm-hmm. and then came back two weeks later and said, I'm thinking of turning you in. I can't imagine when he left not thinking, I don't think I want to be around here. <laughs>
0: Were they able to but
2: con- he convince him otherwise? Or? I've, I've interviewed them all separately about this and gone back because I find it kind of unbelievable that he just he came on one regular night when they were getting together and about to have dinner and then go out casing and simply announced, I've decided I'm not going to participate. They described the situation as he didn't explain and they didn't ask why. And they also didn't ask him to promise that he would keep all the information. He knew everything. And he left. And they continued.
0: were uh, Were you able to track him down, though?
2: I think I know where he is, and I think I could have found him. And I really thought about that for quite a long time, and finally I decided not to get in touch with him, because we didn't know how the FBI was going to react to their coming out, or whether there might be some kind of strong reaction from some segments of the public that would make the Justice Department feel they had to take some action. Mm-hmm. And my feeling finally was, if that was going to happen, I didn't want it to happen until after the book was out, and I didn't trust him mm-hmm. to—I didn't know what his feelings were now, but if he thought that it was a terrible thing, I didn't want him d- destroying our ability to get the word out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, this was a great talk. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.